Our text for today comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you shall share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. This is God's word. Today is Trinity Sunday, and we're going to consider this morning the the mysterious but very significant power of the Trinity, of God the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. We're going to start a a short series today for a few weeks, just thinking very thoughtfully about God's means of grace. How does he get his empowerment to us? How, what has he given us so that we can live uh, in his strength and be guided by his wisdom and by the light of his word? So the word Trinity is nowhere in the scriptures, but the reality of the Trinity is everywhere in the scriptures, starting right in the book of Genesis, when God's creating uh, man, the pinnacle of all creation. And he said, let us make man in our image. And throughout all of the scriptures, we see uh, God the Father working through uh, uh, his plan of redemption. Uh, God the Son, as God incarnates, and he lives the perfect life none of us can live. And he obeys the law of God to the perfection that none of us can obey it. And he loves God and worships God and loves others with a, a, an absolute self-emptying abandonment at the cross that none of us can can do and he just walks out that provides for us everything the law requires so you've got god the father planning our redemption god the son accomplishing it at the cross and then god the spirit poured out at pentecost which we celebrated last sunday uh, and then indwelling the holy uh, the, the church with the holy spirit the presence of god the third person of god and so, thus trinity sunday the sunday after pentecost we just sit in the gravity of all that this means and all that it offers And this is why, because of this trinity, we can say that God is love. Because our God is not just a God who is transcendent and distant. Our God is transcendent over creation, but eminent and cares about your next breath and what you're up to on Monday. And is uh, eminently close uh, in our lives. And so our God has spun forth the cosmos, all that exists from love. Because before anything existed, he was complete within himself. God the Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, that within the Godhead himself, this outward-driven uh, uh, force of, of care and of enjoyment and of pleasure. That's why we can say God is love as Christians. Our God is love. Love is the expression of from one object being poured out on another. So if our God was not a trinity, 
and we could not say that our God has been eternally a God of love, he would have needed to create something to therefore commit the act of love. So what we learn from this is that everything that is created is created from love. We have been created for love. And even though the reason for evil in the world is quite complicated and layered, I don't mind simplifying it by saying that all underneath all the evil in the world is misplaced self-love. As the problem in the garden, it's been the problem ever since, misplaced self-love always ends in suffering. And all of us in some way are guilty of contributing to that suffering in the world through our own misplaced self-love. And so what we learn from our Trinitarian God who uh, created all things from love, created us from love, is that we are predominantly lovers. The French philosopher Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. And in his philosophy, he put at the hierarchy of the human experience, the intellect. But what we learn uh, from our God, his nature, and therefore our nature, is that what is at the hierarchy of the human experience is not actually my intellect, but it is my loves. It is my appetite. It is the driving force within me that is constantly inclined towards things. This is why when you read the wisdom literature throughout the Proverbs and throughout Ecclesiastes, there is this idea that to be fully human, as God would define human, is to be a person of love. To have that misplaced love results in being what the Proverbs describe as less than human because it keeps using adjectives like beast-like, animalistic, driven by, the, driven by our own sort of passions. And so our Trinitarian God, he is this God of love. And uh, Augustine got it right when he said that, Oh God, uh, we were created for you. And our hearts are restless, and they will remain restless until they rest on you. So we cannot think and educate ourselves into a human utopia. We worshipped our way into this problem. And it's only correcting that wayward worship that we worship our way back out of our problems. By turning our hearts and our minds and our souls to the God of love, the God of all comfort. So let's start to break this text down. I hope that this is going to be helpful for you today as, we think, as you think about your own life, as you think about your own sufferings, as you think about the God of all comfort. Verse 3, God of comfort. Comfort is not merely uh, soothing and kind of giving a bit of a hug and patting on the, on the shoulder. What we're going to discover as we break this text out is it's, it, does, it does include consoling. We do have a God who comforts us in the sense that he consoles us. But it is much more than this. It is a consoling that is healing and renewing and reviving, which I think we're familiar with. But also the God of all comfort is a God who is not only consoling but forging. The The God of comfort, he comforts us by forging something in us. And we see this through the life of the apostles and we see this in the text here today. So our God isn't just... Again, because he's a trinity, this is the significance of the incarnation of God coming to be with us. Is that our God doesn't remain distant and sort of send vague positive vibes and that's his comfort. He incarnated in Christ. Our God gets his hands dirty. He went to the cross. He was born in the saliva of of a feeding trough. He gets our suffering. He's intimately acquainted with human pain and sorrow and tears. The Bible calls him man of sorrow. So he gets the pain of human experience, and then he gives us his Holy Spirit um, so that he's, he's not just sending positive vibes to us, and that's comfort. He's fundamentally and internally changing us. This, of course, is slow, and it takes over the course of our lifetime, but this is how he does it. And perhaps you're here today, and you're like, well, I don't like all of this talk of suffering. I would like a, 
I would like a version of Christianity with no suffering. Well, they, you can't even be a human without dealing with suffering. So the only way to get through the human experience is to learn to grapple with suffering. And there are forms of deism masquerading as Christianity, which is a bit of a theological gong show that suggests that if you love God enough and trust him enough and you're mature enough and you read the Bible enough and you pray enough, you're sort of diminishing your problems for suffering. And that's just a, that's just a faith crisis waiting to happen. Because then when... when Life goes sideways and the rope gets and the rug gets pulled up from underneath you and we're landing on the ground staring at the sky. We're saying, why God, why? I, after all, I prayed and read my Bible and went to church a lot. Why is this happening to me? This is a completely wrong understanding of the God of all comfort, the God who is in suffering. The world is broken and Christ went to the cross and then he broke death to make sure that one day the world would be renewed and restored. But until that day, we're all grappling with suffering. So we can't relate to Christian faith like a drive-through and just be like, um, hi, yeah, I'd like to order um, a life of blessing, a side of blessing. If I could also get, would you like some blessing sauce with that blessing to go on your blessing? Yes, please, I would like some more blessing. Thank you. What is that? It's a modern invention. That's a construct. That's a God of our own modern construct. But that's not the God of Christianity. And so he is this God of all comfort who comes to us. Comfort in the Greek is um, the comforter, the Perikalesis. And the perikalesis is here talking about the God of all comfort, which is, means the God of all strengthening. Every language has a range of meaning, right? So you could translate it many ways to get a full sense of it. The God of comfort, the God of strengthening, the God who helps and makes strong. The, the later Latin translations of the Bible use the word fortis. If my family on the Italian side was here, they'd say, hey, that sounds a little bit like Forza. And if you are a soccer fan, and some of you are, then you know that when Italy's playing, everybody's yells in Forza Italia. And what that means, Italy strong, Italy brave, Italy steadfast. That's what, that's what the fortis is. That's what this is, what this is saying, is that he is the God of all comfort. This is an opportunity for the church when nothing is good and nothing is right and everything is broken and everything is on fire to in the midst of the tears be able to say... Forza Dio, I will be strong in God. My God will strengthen me even in this. And a quick caveat is that the immediate context for this suffering is not just garden variety human suffering. It's actually the suffering that came because they were preaching the gospel. So there's suffering that's common to all human beings. and There's suffering common to humanity. And then there's suffering that's unique to Christianity, which is the suffering of persecution as you share your faith. And then there's fallout, either relational fallout or vocational fallout. Or some, or in some many places in the world, a very physical, tangible fallout. So that's specific to the suffering here. But this principle of God of comfort transcends just this verse because you find it being used in many other uh, verses: John fourteen, John sixteen, John fifteen, Luke two, First John two, Hebrews two. The Trinitarian God of comfort is everywhere. So the immediate context is persecution because they shared their faith. But I, and so we do need to think about that. Because that's the immediate context of this verse. Is my way of evading that sort of suffering by just not talking about it. That's a good way to evade that sort of a suffering. Ah, whew, got that out of my life. I just will make sure that I'm undercover for Jesus. And I'm just a really good person. And you know, maybe if somebody wanders over and asks me why I'm really good, then I'll tell them. This is insane. Atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Buddhists are all very nice people. We work with them. Right? So we can't play that game. It's about sharing our faith in Christ, his death, his resurrection, and what it means. And there's persecution that comes on the other side of that, of doing that. So anyways, as we continue down through this text, you see in verse 4, this comfort comes for a reason. Verse 4 says, I'm, the, the comfort 
comes so that. In other words, there's a strengthening that comes for a specific purpose, and that is that it would be a, uh, an encouragement and a blessing to the church. We are comforted so that we can comfort the people sitting in the chairs next to us. We are comforted so that we can bring comfort to those who live on our street, who are in pain and in sorrow and hurting. We are comforted with the strength of God, the indwelling power of His Spirit, the one who will one day wipe every tear from every eye. We are comforted so that we can be His hands, so that we can be His feet, so that we can care. Some of you might be um, seeing this and realizing, oh my goodness, this is meaning that if we're all called to be comforters, that means we're all being called to ministers to share faith. And it might be intimidating because you might say that if we're being comforted for the purpose of comforting others, that's not my gift. I mean, other people are good at comforting, but I'm not. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have training. We, you and I, we are all called to be ministers of comfort. That doesn't mean that we're therapists and counselors and professionals. It means we care. We're called to care. 2013, sorry, 2012. A pastor that I knew says to me, Paul, there's an opportunity for you to go to Nunavut and speak at the small church to these youth and do like a little youth conference. Do you want to go? I said, wow, what an opportunity. This is unbelievable. Yeah, I'd love to go and preach the gospel to these kids. Well, I get there and guess what? The information was wrong. I wasn't speaking, which is what I'm trained to do. Wasn't preaching the word of God and breaking it out and exegeting it, which is what I went to, what I went to seminary for. When I got there, I wasn't speaking at all. I got there and they, they pointed to a dingy tin building and they said, you're going to counsel. You're going to be a counselor in there for a week for youth who are, have addictions to like gasoline and drugs and glue and alcohol. And that's what you're going to do for a week. Well, it's quite a bit out of my box. No training or skills for that sort of thing. And nine days, I was only there for nine days and it felt like 90 days because I've never felt so incompetent and in over my head in my life. But I had to recalibrate that first day I was there up against the corner of the building trying to get a signal so I could text Susan, hoping to get a, Susan, get a signal to be like, this is not what I thought. Pray for me, I'm going to die. I'm despairing of life. Some of you could have a despairing of life t-shirt. Despair of life, still here. Thanks be to God. But what I could do was care. So I sat in a dirty tin building, completely untrained for all the young people that walked in there. And I just cared. And listened and talked and shared the gospel and fumbled around and I just prayed that God would use my ridiculous stammering lips to do a deep and powerful work by the power of the Spirit and be a God of comfort. See, I could minister comfort because even though I can't relate to their pain in any way, I have my own pain and my own failure and my own brokenness and my own sadness and my own disappointments and like I have been on the receiving end of things that I didn't ask for and I've also been a contributor to the pain and hurt and sorrow in other people's lives as a result of my pain and sorrow. So I'm not innocent. You see, we are, we are being comforted by the power of the Holy Spirit so that, we can be comf- so that we can go and bring comfort. Be His hands, be His feet. Every person in this room can do that. In some way. By giving away your time. 
by giving away, by letting people crack into that airtight schedule of yours. Oh, but you understand, you don't understand, Paul, I've got to, I got to do this and do that and work here and do that and go to the gym. And this is when I have my green tea and this is when I sleep. And it's just all got to work that way. That's, that's self-care. That is selfishness baptized in self-care. You will have more mental health by giving your life away than you will by living in your own head. That's the Bible. This is the God of all comfort. He's like, I got to get out of myself. And I'm, I'm speaking gently here because I have my own uh, uh, struggles and challenges emotionally, mentally. But there are some people in this room who are like, careful preacher. I struggle in a way you can't fathom. And I agree with you. And I'm not trying to be trite to your pain and your sorrow. What I'm saying is, even a secular counselor who's never even read the Bible will tell you, you know, get a pet, do this, do, I mean, do something to get out, of your, get out of your own head. Give your life away to a dog, care for a plant. Just get out of yourself. And that, that wisdom from the person who's never read the Bible is good, godly wisdom. Get outside yourself. This is how we minister comfort. We've got, to, we've got to care about someone else other than ourselves. And the apostles, here they are in this moment of sorrow and tragedy because they're sharing the gospel in Asia. Nothing is going good. Nothing is going well. And they need the God of comfort. And they need this strength to come. They don't need a, a pat on the shoulder. They need something much more deep. Verse 8, it says they were under pressure and they couldn't even hardly endure it. Many of you have been there. The Greek word for, for uh, uh, the, 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 the sufferings here, it's a, the specific word is uh, physical pressure. It's thalipsis. It means, yeah, you're physically feeling, there's a physiological response. Some of you are like, my goodness, this is, yeah. For some of us, and I would put myself in this category, we experience stress and anxiety and pressure and sorrow and tragedy. And like it bogs us down mentally and it makes our day terrible and maybe it lasts for a couple hours or a day or a week, but we don't have a physiological reaction to it. But there are others in this room who you're like, it knocks me out. That's where they're at. They're like, we despair. It's not just hyperbole here. They're like, they were like, oh God, the pressure. And so what did they need? They didn't, they didn't need a, a, a tap on the shoulder. They needed a fundamental infusion of divine peace and strength and grace. And you and I need it. And so there's only one, way, one place we can get it. And we're not going to get it with mini messiahs. They can't let Netflix and YouTube babysit you and distract you from your pain. You can't go to some substance of some kind, whatever it is, name your poison. Or you might have very baptized, socially acceptable ways of... of um, of you know, getting out of your head, and you're like, oh no, no I don't, I don't drink or or do this or or uh, smoke joints to relax or anything. Like, no, 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 I don't do that. I just pour myself into work. Well, that's just a different mini messiah. It's just culturally acceptable. That's all. I got to clear my head. I got to go do this. Hey, we all have to do that. But our first stop needs to not be the mini messiah. It needs to be the messiah. Because then we can enjoy the small thing. I got to go, go do gardening, go for a walk, do this, go to the gym, drink this uh, tea, relax with a glass of wine. But you're going to enjoy all those little good things? Fine. But you can't elevate those things to the main thing. You're never going to get the comfort that you need. The apostles, their life was so bad, they want to just fall on the couch, flop face first, cry and die. That's what they want to do. So I got some good news for you, and it's the word endurance. 
The endurance of the Spirit, the endurance that the apostles get, the endurance that God is offering you, is not like a parent giving a child an iPad so they can muscle through the dentist chair. The dentist chair called life. The dentist chair called your job. The dentist chair called your marriage. The dentist chair called fill in the blank. The image of the endurance uh, that we're given, the idea of the text, is that you're giving water to a marathon runner. The marathon runner is in pain, but then someone comes in out of the crowd and runs alongside them and gives them a little cup of water and they drink that water, and that water does something to them. It strengthens them. It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't take the marathon away. If they still got 20 more miles to go, they still got 20 more miles to go, but they're being infused with something. And so you see the good news of the presence and the power of God and the Holy Spirit in your life, the means of grace, his word, his prayer, the people sitting in the chair next to you, is that God will therefore strengthen you to finish your race, strengthen you through your race, be with you in your suffering, be with you in that difficult time, strengthen you, nourish you, and replenish you. You know, there are Olympic marathon runners. There are like, you know, these, the, uh, not, just, not just the marathon runners, but you've got like these... You know, I can't can't remember what it's called. The Iron Man. What is it called? The crazy length one. Yes, there's these runners. Thank you for that. You can tell I don't run. Sometimes I run when it's raining, and I hate the feeling of rain on the back of my neck. But other than that, I basically don't really run. Anyways, yeah. Thanks for that, uh, Jeff Raberkin, uh, runner. Anyway, there are runners who are so skilled. They they can finish the race, and they got a buddy who's doing one for the first time. They run back. And then they're like running alongside. I'm like, you can do it, man. Now, I got to be honest. Part of me would be like, thank, wouldn't be like, thanks for the comfort. I'd be like, get out of here. Yeah, John. You finished the race hanging around beside me now. But what the Holy Spirit is for you and I is the one who is running alongside us in our pain, nourishing us in our pain, not just distracting us in the dentist chair of whatever problem we happen to be dealing with. And so we need to do what the apostles did. And that is the second half of verse 8. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on the one who raises the dead. And we would do well this Trinity Sunday and all week to make deep application of that one word, rely. So you see, the end of the sermon isn't like, hey, here's your three points. There, now your suffering is going to be over. The end of the sermon is ongoing life application. It is rely. That's not one and done. That's just like every day. It's a rhythm. It's a liturgy. We build it into the reliance of God. His means of grace. Availing ourselves of His presence. Verse 7. We know that as you are partakers of our suffering, you will also be partakers of the consolation. The good news here of the community of faith. The people sitting in the chair sitting next to you. Given to you as God's hands and his feet. Tangible means of grace. Not a, not, not a strength from the spirit that's so abstract. That, and I'm not, diminishing any, I'm not diminishing that there can be times when you're in solidarity by yourself. In prayer with the Bible. Being nourished and encouraged. I'm not diminishing that. Because that is a part of the Christian experience. But what you need to see is that what God has given. What's going on here. Notice the apostles are saying they felt the prayers. They're saying that it's not, a, it's not a faith that's walked out in obscurity and in solidarity. It's a faith that's, it's a strength that's coming communally. We feel your prayers. We know your prayers. That's not just like a North American, like, I don't know you. I don't know your last name. 
we never spend any time together ever, but I'll pr- I'm praying for you. And we're like, thanks for that. Maybe you are, maybe you are, I don't know. But when in community, you care about the people sitting in the chairs next to you, and this is a commercial, make no mistake about it, for whatever it is that we're doing as a church corporately. Hey, you're having coffee with each other and you're doing stuff great. But when we're like, hey, this fall community groups, get in houses for eight weeks around prayer, around a scripture, meditating on the text, getting into each other's lives, not just cerebral North American Bible study. Let's break this down. No. What are the names of the kids? What's going on at work this week? Getting into each other's sorrow and suffering and pain. The apostles experienced it. They knew it. So they're speaking from experience. The power of community. But what keeps you and I from doing this? Pride, fear. I don't want to talk about my garbage. I don't want to share with anybody my... I mean, there can be a lot of reasons. Pain, sorrow. You've got a backdrop of church experience where it's like anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of the church. And you're just like, I'm just not sharing anymore. I'm not going to open up. Spend a weekend with anybody in this room and you'll be like, Okay, this is a church full of human beings. We got some Christians with bona fide needs for grace in their lives. There's not a person in this room who does not need the saving and forgiving and renewing grace of Jesus. I am at the top of that list. I'm worse than you because I'm not in your head. So I don't know the kinds of things you think, but I know the kinds of things I think. I'll give you a small example. I could give you big, huge examples, but I don't feel that transparent today. So I'm going to give you a small example. Maybe next Sunday I'll give you a huge the gym that I go to has a font across the back of it. It's like six foot letters and it says, no judgment. And I'm in there and I'm like, that doesn't work at all. Not only is that a scriptural principle that the law just inflames, and, you know, Romans is like, no judgment. I'm like, well, now I want to judge. Every time I read it, I judge. I'm judging all the time in there. We're sinners, all of us. But what keeps us from sharing deeply about our lives can be a great many things. But what is being offered to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in just solid solidarity and what we perceive to be safety, but in community where there is true community and true safety and true strength. The apostles have sort of tapped into that. And that's why they're talking about this partaking of consolation each other and, and prayers. The God of all comfort. You see in verse 10. He's confident this God of all comfort delivers past, present, future. So you see, the relying on God is not one and done. It's ongoing. And that's why, and I understand that after church when you say, hey, how are you doing? People, we're going to generally say, yeah, I'm good, fine, how are you? Because that's, that's how our culture operates. Like, do you imagine the gridlock of society if people actually answered that question? Could you imagine it? Like, the, the world would just stop. <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Society can't function if every time somebody says, how are you? So sometimes we get a little bit cynical. About, I've been pastoring for 27 years. And I've heard a lot of people be like, I don't like the chit-chat after church because everybody just says, how are you? Listen, friend. In what world do you think after church, like everybody says, how are you? And everybody's like, here we go. There is a time and a place to say, here we go. And if you're close and intimate to the person you're talking to after church, that's the time and place. And I'll have you know that that happens on Sundays here all the time between people who have deep connection and community. And it happens and it's beautiful. And for lots of other of us, we're like, yeah, I'm good. How was your week? And whatever. And they're like, I'll text you later. We'll call later. Let's have a coffee. Let's sit down. 
But I want you to notice the apostles here. It's like, I'm convinced that this deliverance is ongoing. It's not going to be one and done. We have got to rely on God. We've got to anchor ourselves to the immovable. In verse 11, he says, you see it there, as you help us with your prayers. This is this deep in richness in, in, uh, in community there. So this small community here, Redeemer, we are his, bought the body of Christ. We are his hands, we are his feet. May we care for each other and come alongside each other. And, 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 and as the Holy Spirit is like the one who comes and gives the water to the marathon runner and does what you and I can absolutely not do because none of us are the comforter, none of us are the Holy Spirit. But as we worship our Trinitarian God and recognize the implications that that means that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then that means that we are empowered to care. And so may we do it. May the God of all comfort steady your hearts and your minds. May the God of all comfort strengthen your souls. May the God of all comfort give grace as you persevere. May the God of all comfort be with you in your suffering as you continually turn to him. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Let's pray.